0: Welcome to the program. Yes, we do have a program today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions. Maybe you're going through something difficult right now. Uh, Whatever's on your heart and mind, we'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. It's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com. We just got a bunch of those questions this afternoon. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. All you have to do is send it, and we'll get the question. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Boy, introductions are long now that there's so many different platforms. But push call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Sorry for the bugs yesterday. We had some real... Uh, cable problems here, so we couldn't transmit the program uh, yesterday afternoon. But we're back live today, and we would love your live calls and questions. A couple of things, updates, and uh, I will get to right to question. Um, uh, on Friday last week, we played uh, Jocelyn Enriquez' her Christmas single, a new release. It was um, released today. It is available on all digital platforms, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Music, and all of the others. You guys know them better than I do. Um, So all you have to do is uh, download it or however you get music these days, and uh, you will be blessed. It's called Mary's Song by Jocelyn Enriquez, E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-Z. We're really looking forward to seeing what the Lord is going to do with that. Uh, Also a reminder, as I'll do again tomorrow and Friday, uh, our children's Christmas play is 6.30 this week on Friday at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. At 6.30 you will be blessed. It's free, and um, I can't imagine a better way to spend um, our Friday, uh, anybody spend a Friday night. Um, Our kids today, first through fourth graders, went out Christmas caroling. At the nursing home that they go to every year, what a blessing that was! And then there was one other praise report, a real praise report. Uh, Raina, in in uh, we thank you for all of your prayers uh, after her surgery. I got a picture of her today that was just with her, just grinning, um, big smile, looking like herself again. Um, her husband Carl came over to the gym to say hi to us this morning and let us know that she's doing so well. Uh, Honestly, we're we're watching a miracle before our eyes. This is a woman who was declared with a terminal condition, without much time to live, an inoperable tumor. Uh, Finally, when they decided to operate on it, it was advised against, and yet um, 16 hours worth of surgery uh and, and there there couldn't have been a better result. So uh please keep reina and her husband Carl in your prayers continually. But right now, thank you so much for praying because God has heard our prayers and spared our heart. Good stuff going on. Hey, tonight uh here at Calvary Chapel, I'm gonna be doing an Old Testament Christmas. Uh Isaiah chapter nine verse six and I'll touch on seven but but primarily Isaiah nine six uh, and this is our last Wednesday night before Christmas. So we're going to make sure that we we do that tonight. Let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Anthony calling from San Antonio. Anthony, thanks for holding. you on the air.
2: Hey, Pastor. Alvaro. This is uh, Anthony from Seguin, actually.
0: Oh, hi, Anthony. I got San Antonio yeah. on my screen.
2: Yeah, your old, your old buddy from, from Seguin.
0: <laughs> well, oh, good I'm to hear good, from sir. you. I'm, I'm doing really I'm, well, Anthony.
2: Uh, that's good to hear i'm doing very well as well and that little testimony that you just gave that praise report actually Mm -hmm. gave me uh it it really it just set a a spark in my in my in my heart and and in my life because as you know i've been going through some very tough things over the past four years and i still need surgery to correct my back and to correct the colostomy bag that i have Uh, but there's been a lot of complications but um that little testimony that you just gave—it really, it's giving me—I uh, mean—a lot of hope, and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm hearing great things that God is doing. So, <laughs> you know, my faith is, is 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 elevated a little bit more than it was, you know, not that it's been gone, but it's getting higher. So, I wanted yeah. to say thank you for that. But oh, good uh, for you, Anthony. A, thank you. Thank you, sir. I have a question for you, and, and uh, um, I'm, I'm doing some studying, and I'm glad that I got to this part while it was time for you to get on the air in the book of uh, second corinthians i don't know if you have bible there uh, mm-hmm. if you have, uh okay second corinthians uh chapter uh, three because i'm doing I'm, I'm studying right now i'm studying about these different things chapter three and verse 12 through uh let's say uh 15 it says, therefore, since we have such a hope, uh, you know, we are very bold. We are not. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over the face to keep the Israelites from from uh, gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, this is a question that I have. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. Because only, only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when the when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns from the Lord, the veil is taken away. Taken away. Now, I have two questions: the veil, what veil is is he referring to? And then when he says when Moses is read referring to and I don't have a radio so I'm going to stay on the line if you don't mind okay
0: thank you Anthony Uh, so there's no uh, misunderstanding Uh, when Moses is read is always a reference to the law in that context when the law is read before Jews um, the the veil it's a figurative veil now the, the veil that Moses actually hid his face or 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 put over his face was a literal veil Um, He didn't want the Israelites to see He would come down from those times with God and his face would be glowing from being in the presence of the Lord. Um, But but as he would come down, of course, that that glow would begin to fade away. He didn't want the people to see it fade. So he would cover his face with the veil. Well, what Paul is doing is using that example to say that there is a figurative veil that covers the hearts and the minds of Jews whenever the law is read. Now, I have a, I have a theory on this, um, Anthony, that might be a little different than most. But, um, you know, the, the, the veil, Jews have always looked at the law as though it was something they had to do. And uh, it's almost like, okay, we're going to read the law, I'm going to do the law. Instead, as we know from Galatians, that the law... Uh, should have only served as a schoolmaster, leading us yeah. to Christ. And the reason is because we can't do the law. So that veil, that veil of self-effort, that veil of, of, of trying to do good or be good, is still over their hearts, uh, and it's not been removed because the law is incapable of removing it when he says only in Christ is it taken away, you read the, the last verse, verse 16. Yeah. The answer for that is whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So this is great instruction for us in terms of how to uh, pray for Jews. Um, you know, the, the, God's given them great covenants and great promises, but only in Christ are they going to be fulfilled. And the way I pray for Jews, uh, Jewish unbelievers is that, that okay, Lord, uh, uh, take the veil away. I've got to, uh, a family that I'm very close to, um, actually my landlord here at the church, and a wife and a, a husband and wife and, and uh, two daughters that are in college, you know, and um, uh, they've they've stopped by and talked to me many many times, and this veil you can I can actually see the veil. And yet oh, wow. you can see little glimpses of openings. So my prayer is always for them, Anthony, that they would turn to Jesus, just a little turn by faith to Jesus, and then that veil would be removed. And that's the way Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the, the intent of the passage in Second Corinthians chapter 3. Okay,
2: so it's, it's, it's not a literal veil. It's a figurative uh, veil. And uh, when it says, when Moses is read, that's referring to, to the law when when they're reading the law. the law okay right. okay all right thank you so much pastor you have a great day
0: my pleasure anthony thank you god bless Three four zero ninety five eighty five. you know whenever jesus would go in and he would read from either the law or the prophets in the synagogue um that, that's the the dynamic that he was fighting um, whenever Paul would, would take the gospel first to Jews, that was the dynamic. When when we read over and over that a few believed or uh, or in some cases a lot of people believed, but many more did not believe. Why? It's because that veil that covered their hearts. And I think, and this is for you, Anthony, and for everybody else as well, I I think that there's a lot of times when that's important instruction for us as well because when we... are are told what the Bible says to do, we immediately think, okay, I can do that. Instead of realizing that apart from Christ, we can't do any of it. In fact, apart from Christ, we don't even want to do any of it. And so we look at the Bible as, okay, I got to do this to be good. I got to work hard to please God. Instead of understanding by faith that Jesus already has given us everything because he's already pleased with us. And then as we walk with him and as we pursue good works, we pursue good works as an honor and a privilege as a get-to rather than a got-to. And it's a very important distinction to make as we approach God. It's not what what I have to do. You know, we we have a tendency to leave if we mess up or we fall away for a minute. God's angry with me. He's impatient. He's not going to give me another chance. That's the completely wrong impression. So, uh, Anthony, I hope that uh, really helps. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one comes from Drew. He says, In Matthew chapter 2, the star is referenced as his star. How did the Magi know that a particular star was attracted to the baby Jesus? Uh, or was, I'm sorry, was attached to the baby Jesus? Weren't they from a pagan nation? Um, Drew, they were from pagan nation. They were from um, Babylon. Uh, these are the people we read about them a little bit in Daniel's prophecy. Um, but but Daniel had a big impact, and there was a lot of people in in Babylon that uh, they become the, these wise men or uh, or the Magi, and they were astronomers. So they studied the stars, and they believed the stars held secrets. So. Uh, out of curiosity when they would see this star, and having heard Daniel teach about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, they knew instinctively that this star was a sign for them. Something that's important for us, Drew, to always remember that when God wants to tell us something, he'll always let us know. It's not like, oh boy, great star, what a mystery that is, and then it's done, but they would know in their hearts that this was an answer and that, that, that desire to seek the Lord would, would be a gift from God. And um, because they were astronomers, because they were wealthy, uh, they would be able to um, follow that star. And, of course, we know where it led. Here is a question from our email inbox from Lewis. Lewis. I've been waiting for this question, Lewis, and didn't get it until yesterday. And yesterday, because we didn't have a show, I couldn't do it. So here it is. Is it wrong for Christian parents to tell their kids that Santa is real? Someone may say, oh, lighten up, it's Santa Claus. It's part of the Christmas spirit. It's not a big deal. Don't be a Scrooge. Uh, Then he says this. I don't believe this is the right attitude. A lie is a lie. And parents are lying to their kids if they tell them something is real when it isn't. And if a kid finds out that their parents have been lying to them about the big Christmas guy in the sky, it could affect their trust when parents tell them about the other big guy in the sky. Um, not that God should ever referred to as that, but the parallels attempt to make a point. We get that, Lewis. And if, say, a Sunday school teacher does not play along and lie to a child for the sake of the parents, if they ask about Santa being real in class, are parents in the right to be upset at the Sunday school teacher for revealing to the child that mom and dad have been lying to them? Lewis, uh, I agree 100% with the spirit and the letter of your email. A uh, couple of things. It's always wrong to lie. Jesus said the devil is the father of lies. Now, I know there are lies that we look at as harmless, but but I don't think any lie is harmless. And I'm no Scrooge. you know. I'm not one who says we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's a pagan celebration or all those things. But 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 lying is always always wrong, and we we do that um, because we want to go along to get along. So uh, I have no problem with parents telling them what the legend of Santa Claus is all about. But then reminding them that you know Santa Claus is made up. Our Jesus is real, and then we can talk about the one who really gives good gifts. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave. And so we get the gifts. It's Jesus' birthday we celebrate, but God is the one who gives the gifts. I love that. So um, I honestly believe that parents need to learn to tell their children the truth. Uh, Paula will tell you that, that when she found out Santa Claus was a lie, she always wondered, well, what else are my parents lying to me about? So I think it's a terrible thing to do. I don't think anybody's going to hell for it. But at the same time, um, the devil is the author of lies, the father of lies. And because of that, it's always wrong to lie. One more comment. The idea about a Sunday school teacher, if a parent ever puts a Sunday school teacher or a children's ministry teacher in a position to lie to their parents, that's not on 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 the Sunday school teacher or the children's church teacher at all. That's on the parent. So when people walk in these doors, we tell them the truth. And if a kid asks us if Santa Claus is real, um, we're going to go get their parents. We're going to sit down and give the parents the opportunity to tell them the truth. But the idea here is that lying is always, always wrong. And someone says, oh, you're just being a Scrooge. It's a Christmas spirit. It's not part of the Christmas spirit. Santa is not, has nothing to do with the Christmas spirit. The real Christmas spirit is the spirit of Christ. And I too have had some fallout from saying that. Oh, it's not a big deal. We just want our kids to stay kids. I want them to stay kids that know and love the truth. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from our email inbox from Chip. He says, Pastor on, would you please explain Second Peter chapter three verse five and chapter three verse twelve? Verse five: The earth was formed out of water and by water. Is there a way to understand formed out of water? Is the latter a reference uh, of water referring to the Holy Spirit? Uh, Let me do that one first, Chip. No, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit. The earth, the land was formed out of water. The The earth was covered by water and the land appeared. So that's what that's a reference to um so that's all that's the reference to uh it says in verse 12 as you look forward to the day of god and speed it's coming do we have a way to speed up and bring about the return lord quicker than time is now what does that look like and how do we know it's working will there be signs if you will showing us that we're making progress Chip, I love that question. You know, we know that prayer. I had this question on Monday. I think it was, um, "Prayer moves the heart of God." Um, um, we need to look forward to the day of God. Speed, it's coming. I don't know that we can actually move the timetable because God knows exactly when that time is going to occur, and we don't. But I think the the picture here is as I'm looking forward to the day of, of God. Um, there's an excitement, there's an eagerness, that that moment when we're with our Jesus. And then time seems to speed up a little bit. You, know, you all have children, and many of you have children at home, and they've been looking forward to Christmas ever since the Christmas uh, advertisement started appearing on TV. Well, the closer we get to it, the closer it is. And I think that's what Peter is communicating. um we speed it's coming. Is that an individual thing? I, it must be because there's no way that we can move that timetable. What I do know is that as we live our lives every day expecting the return of Jesus, when that day comes, it will come suddenly. Not so much speed it up in terms of days, weeks, months, or years, but it'll come all of a sudden without warning and we will be with Jesus. Now, the day of God that Peter refers to in in this particular chapter is not the rapture. It's a very Jewish reference to the day of the Lord. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus returns, and we return with him, uh, he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives, he'll destroy his enemies, and that's that's always the Jewish reference to the day of the Lord, the rapture is coming prior to that, some seven years prior to that, um, and uh, we can see signs all around us. Now, in the Great Tribulation, in that last seven years, there will be signs everywhere. Joel talks about the prophet. Joel talks about the blood moon and the and, and the the dark sky. Um, the 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 signs um, that are are given to us in the Book of Revelation itself. Um, so, so those who are alive during the great tribulation, they will see those signs for you and for me, Chip, right now, today, all we can do is look at the world that we live in. We can see how uh, hard the hearts are and how those hearts have turned from God. And the result will be the, the, the heart of men and women grows cold. Paul talks about it in the second Timothy chapter three, the last and most personal of his correspondences with Timothy's. But Timothy marked this, in the last days there will be perilous times, he said. And then he describes the kind of worldship that we live in. So those are the signs for us. But the signs in the sky, the signs of judgment, the pouring out of God's wrath, those are very specific signs that Jesus talks about on the Olivet Discourse, um, the Old Testament prophets prophesy of. Uh, We, fortunately, will not be here to see those signs. Thank God. God for that. So, Chip, thank you for the question. I love end times questions. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we've probably got about a little over three minutes left in this half of the program. Here is a question from our mobile app. It comes in anonymously. It says, I've always loved the idea of food in heaven with no calories or adverse effects. So do I, anonymous. But what about 1 Corinthians 6.13 where Paul says, Uh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, um, even though God is someday going to do away with both of them. Uh, I think what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 6, Anonymous, is simply, um, you know, our carnal nature. We crave food to fill our stomachs. Um, We sin to fill our, our, our spiritual, our figurative stomachs. Um, but but that's what it's for. But but that that entire passage in First Corinthians chapter six is about denying self, getting away from the, the the needs, the carnal needs, of of our flesh, and instead living for the Spirit of God. First Corinthians six is one of those places where it talks about people who live like this, and it describes a lifestyle of willful, willful sin. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So our sights are supposed to be higher. Our pursuits are supposed to be that which pleases the spirit of God in us. I, too, anonymous, have always loved the idea of food in heaven. Now, I don't know what the kind of food is. I have a thing now. I make a confession here. I'm not a fruit person. Uh, I'll eat bananas and um, uh, Paula gives me raspberries. That That's fine. But I'm just not a fruit person. I'm a texture guy and I can't bite into a pear, or bite into a peach or something like that. It just kills me. Um, but but I think in heaven we're going to eat fruit. And I say that because the fruit of the trees uh, of paradise, it, it's going to be wonderful. Here's what I know for sure. Everything that we eat in heaven will be perfect. Everything that we're given We'll have no calories or adverse effects. We'll have spiritually resurrected physical bodies instead of these bodies that we have. So um, I'm with you on that. I love the idea of food in heaven uh, as well. Think about it a lot. We have 30 minutes left to go in the program. Let me remind you very quickly. Tonight I'm going to be doing an Old Testament Christmas from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 primarily. I also want to remind you that uh, Jocelyn Enriquez's new Christmas single Mary's Song has been released um, today. It's available on all the digital platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, Spotify and any others that you can find. You will be blessed. Uh, So we look forward to hearing that. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back
1: in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
0: We're back with the second half of the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. Here is a question from Thomas from our email inbox. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor On. In John three two, Nicodemus says to Jesus, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God." When Nicodemus says "we," is he talking about we all of us who are? right here with you right now, or we, all of the Pharisees and religious leaders, or we, all of the people of Israel. Thank you, Pastor Thomas. He's speaking specifically about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, of which he would have been a member. So he's speaking collectively, uh, but the context is we, and and the idea here, and we, we know this by going through the gospel accounts, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, uh, they were always kind of huddling together to, to see what they're going to do about this Jesus problem. And those who are honest, like um, Nicodemus and like Joseph of Arimathea. Um, but, but nobody could do this if he weren't from God. Nobody could teach like he's teaching. We've never heard someone teach with such authority unless he was sent from God. So they know. And I think. What Nicodemus was doing was summarizing the condition of his own heart. He was coming to Jesus saying, look, I know who you are. In fact, we all do now. Many of those religious leaders would have denied that publicly. But in private, they all knew. And that's why they were so accountable. So that was the basis of Nicodemus's approach, Thomas, Um Thought he was sort of buttering him up, flattering him a little bit. Um, but Jesus didn't let it go unnoticed. He um, simply corners him. You must be born again. You of all people should know that you must be born again. Otherwise, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, that led into um, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. So, Thomas, thank you for that. Here is a question from our mobile app from William. Why did Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan? Wasn't Peter just expressing concern for someone he loved? Um, Peter was being manipulated behind the scenes, William, by the enemy. We know that because Satan, uh, Jesus was addressing the spirit behind Peter. This wasn't a condemnation of Peter at all. He wasn't saying, Peter, you're a devil. What he was saying is the words that you just spoke have nothing to do with, with God or the things of God. You concerned about the things of this world, and uh, if you remember, Peter had just been commended for confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus told him, "Blessed are you, happier you, because this has been revealed to you not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven." And then he said this to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name to sift you as sweet or to sift you as sand, another translation says. But don't worry, I've prayed for you. So this was Jesus rebuking the devil behind Peter's statement. Oh no, this should be far from you. That's the statement. You don't have to go to the cross. I won't permit it was kind of the idea. That was just Satan speaking through Peter, and Jesus was addressing the the enemy directly, the cause of that concern. You know, a lot of times, William, when our faith is weak, it's the enemy who's trying to destroy us. We need to always be aware of this. I think this is a very important uh, portion of Scripture because it kind of gives us a leg up on on some of the, the, the ways that the enemy works. Peter will later write, we're not unaware of his schemes. And the devil's always scheming, and Peter would know because the devil asked for him by name. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Jesus was not being unkind at all. In fact, he was protecting Peter. Don't worry, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Let's go to Jonestown, Texas now talk with Dale on line one. Dale, thanks for calling Appreciate your call. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron,
2: I was just gonna Hi, follow up.
0: How you doing? Doing
2: great. Good, good. I was gonna follow up uh, for some for on something for people to consider regarding Santa Claus um, that I never really thought of before until last night when we were watching a, a Santa Claus movie and. Um, You know, that is at a time when we're celebrating the birth of our Savior who came for sinners, not the righteous, and was, you know, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, uh, really the whole basis of the gospel. When I was looking at the message of making a list of those who are naughty and nice and withholding, (laughs) I mean, it's it's really in contradiction to the whole message of the gospel we're supposed to be celebrating at this time.
0: Yep. You know, uh Dale, I appreciate that. I was I was um I used that in a in a message not too long ago. Um, you know, aren't we glad that Jesus isn't like Santa Claus checking his list to see who's naughty or nice as though the only way we get something good from God is by being nice. It, it is a message that is not only in contradiction but in opposition to the message of the gospel, um, Jesus loves me, no matter what I do, and His love is not any greater if I do good, um, or or any less when I do naughty. Because God's love is infinite. So I think that's a great comment, and and uh, I appreciate you you calling, Dale.
2: All right. Well, Merry
0: Christmas. You too. Merry Christmas to you as well. Jonestown is in the Round Rock area and I'm um, glad to see we've got uh, a good, strong signal down there. And, oh, yeah. And, and by the way, Dale, if you ever make a trip up here, bring me some of those Round Rock donuts. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. You know, I mentioned donuts right after I get the call about food in heaven that won't have any calories. Those donuts here definitely have calories, don't they? Here is a question from our email inbox from... Terry, you know, this is a little bit long, so uh, I'll edit it a little bit. Uh, Pastor Ryan, I heard you preach a sermon once on relating Jesus calming the storm. Maybe it was Peter walking on water with trials. I think you broke trials into four categories, talking about Jesus sending the disciples into the sea where they would be tested. How some trials are from God and he wants to push us into deeper water. Uh, other trials might be from God as a course correction in our lives. Um... My question is, are all trials ultimately from God? I found it hard to differentiate between a trial from God and say Satan having a field day um, with me on a bad day. I've looked at both Job and James when it comes to explaining trials. God is sovereign in Job. Satan had to get permission to put Job through his trials. So even if a trial is from Satan, isn't it ultimately from God because in his sovereignty he's allowing it to happen? I just want to know if treating Every trial, even the ones that happen on a really, really bad day is a test from God is the right attitude or heart. I'm not looking to blame God, but I also don't want to say, count it as joy. God's testing me if he isn't, and it's a trial from Satan or something. Uh, We're to count it all joy, no matter what the source is. Now, I'm not being trite here or flippant with the idea. Nobody likes trials, uh, Terry. Nobody likes uh, being in deep water. Uh, we like comfort and we like understanding, but, 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 there are trials that that, as I said earlier, God wants us um, to take steps of faith. And too many of us we get cushy and cozy in our trials, and we we are in our comfort rather, and we we want to avoid trials, so we don't take that step of faith that God is asking. And pretty soon, He's going to push us off the ledge. I think about Jonah. Uh, when he had to walk the plank, uh, he knew that this was a self-inflicted wound. And and uh, when that great fish swooped him up and swallowed him, uh, Jonah knew that he was there because of his willful disobedience. It's almost as though, of course, I had this coming. I knew the right thing to do, and I didn't want to do it. In fact, I was running the opposite way. So um, Jonah is probably the greatest example in all of the Bible about a course correction. He was going away from Nineveh, and God had a whale swallow him and then gave him the GPS coordinates for Nineveh and sent him right back there. So that's a trial that's sent from God. Um, Satan, not all trials are from God. Satan uh, messes with us. Um, we we, we deal with very difficult things in the world that we live in. I'm just sharing the praise report from from Raina and Carl at the beginning of this program. Uh, They have been through about a year of the worst trial. I mean, I just can't imagine anything any worse. Uh, We had a family that is so faithful to God Um, earlier this year and in February, March of this year. Uh, lose their eight-year-old son. They have been in a trial that is overwhelming at times. And we all have those trials. We live in this dirty, fallen world. Those aren't from God. Now, the idea of, well, they're all from God because God is sovereign and he allows it to happen is, is, is really not the The healthiest way to view these trials. Uh, God only allows trials to happen in our lives, Terry, insofar as he doesn't prevent them from happening. And I've had Christians say, well, God, if he could prevent them, he should prevent them. But but God doesn't prevent trials. You know, it's it's interesting to me. We, we, we read about other people having terrible tragedies, people that we don't know. We see it in the newspaper. We see it on the TV news or something. We don't get mad at God for that. But when it happens to us, we get angry. And I think that's disingenuous. That's disingenuous. So God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that God intervenes to keep us away from trials. Um, There are some trials that come. Deuteronomy says to test us to see what's in our heart. We think we know what's in our heart, but then the trial comes and we sort of fade away. Why? Because our heart wasn't right. We wouldn't know that unless the test came. So um, I believe that knowing that some trials come from God is exactly the right to add to the heart. We should respond to them quickly. Um, Others experience trials that are uh, self-induced trials, trials of their own making. Or simply course correction trials, we should also pay attention to those and make the necessary course correction. So um, a trial, by definition, is painful. But we know that Jesus is with us in our trials, and that's what we need to remember. So Terry, I hope I answered your question. But just because God allows something, it's not causative, People have been suffering from the moment Adam and Eve sinned. It's not realistic. In fact, it's naive to expect that just because we're Christians, we shouldn't suffer. Paul says that suffering has been granted to us as a gift. As a gift. And i got to tell you, I'm not grateful for that gift as often as I ought to be. And yet I watch what so many people that we minister with here at Calvary Chapel, I watch the work that God does in them and through them in these trials. And you conclude that it's worth it. Again, we don't like the trial. I'm not being naive here. But you see the Christian that emerges from the trial And that's a man or woman more like Jesus than they ever imagined they would be. So I hope, Terry, that um, makes some sense to you. Here is a question from Mike. Oh, no, you know what? This is a question that I read right at the end of the program on Friday, or on Monday, rather. And I didn't have much time. So Mike's question was, what should the focus of youth groups be? And his question said, it seems like we focus at our church on outreach and missions almost completely. And my my quick answer, running out of time the other day, uh, Mike, was we should focus on Jesus, the Word of God. Do they know the Bible? Do they know the Bible stories? Do they know the characters? Do they understand that reading the Bible and being transformed by it is really what the focus of our youth group should be? Now, the reason I wanted to keep this question over, Mike, is because I know there's a lot of uh, pastors who listen to this program in San Antonio, and uh, a lot who are young and doing youth ministry. And we have these kids for a short time at the formative years. Our church has always taught the Bible verse by verse, no matter the age. Now, obviously, we we do it uh, at their age level. But when you come to Calvary Chapel, you bring your child to Calvary Chapel, they're going to be in the Bible verse by verse. And they're going to teach that passage. Teach at the level the child can understand, but they're going to teach that passage. That means our kids, from the time they're toddlers, they know about Jesus. They know about the Bible stories, the, the, the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they know about David and Goliath. And they know all these stories. But we're relating it always as it comes up in the Bible. Um, when they come to junior high school, those questions change as their bodies and their minds change. So what we have to do by the time they get there is have a foundation that's solid enough that it won't be shaken when things begin to change. So the focus of all youth ministries should be just give them Jesus. The way we do that is to teach the word of God. And anything else is insufficient. Entertaining them, uh, having fun, none of that matters. What matters is that they get a foundation in who Jesus is and what he's done and then they have a, at least a working understanding of the word of God. So Mike, that's what we always focus on here and um, to um, entertain kids just to be the cool youth group is a, a, a real recipe for disaster when these kids go out and find out that The world's not exactly what they thought it was. We've got to prepare kids today for temptations that, when I grew up, were really minor by comparison. You know, I I remember sneaking peeks at Playboy magazine, the liquor store that we bought candy at. But that was nothing compared to your children now walking around with porn coming through their computers, their phones. And, and moms and dads, youth leaders, if you don't prepare your kids for that, they're gonna get overwhelmed by all of the filth that's in this world. My youth pastor, I love him, I love him for a lot of reasons, but but he's really bold. And um, he tells parents, if you let your child go into his or her bedroom at night with their cell phone, you're giving them the tools to destroy them with. You're handing them sort of a metaphorical bomb that's going to explode one day. And you're going to wonder, what happened? How did my son or my daughter get caught up in all of this? You gave them the platform. By the way, I know you well, know, I'm on their phones, I know who they're calling. You do not know. They have apps that will and all the kids know about them, that will hide anything from you they want hidden from you. And we just can't be naive as Christian parents anymore and say, "Well, well, my daughter my son wouldn't do such a thing because they all do, they all will. Flesh is flesh. And our job as parents and youth leaders, Mike, our job is to equip them to deal with the world as it is, not the world the way we want it to be. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here's a question from Rachel. She says, I'm confused by the head covering passages in First Corinthians. That's chapter 11, by the way. Uh, are women to cover their hair in church still? Um, Rachel, a lot of people are confused by that. Paul was writing to a church that was out of control and see, there's one one problem. If we take a, a a passage out of its context, then we can make it say anything. And remember, as a good Bible student, our job is to discern what it is the author intended to say. Not what it says to us, not what we wanted to say, not something that supports our opinions. What did the author intend to say? And in first Corinthians, the, the subject is not head covering at all in that chapter. It's authority, being under authority. The Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Man is the head of the woman. The idea there is that there's order. There's authority. And for a woman to pray with her head uncovered, that's again not talking about the veil. It was customary in Corinth. It still is in a lot of places uh, in the world that women wear head coverings when they go in to pray, and other religions as well. It's more cultural than is religious. But what Paul was talking about was you need to be covered by the authority of your husband. No out-of-control stuff, no rebellious, but be under the authority of your husband. When you pray that way, then, then your prayers are going to be heard. So don't be confused. Don't wear head coverings to church, unless, of course, that's your preference. But um, it's, it's not a, a, a sign of respect. It's not a sign of anything other than Paul was trying to get the Corinthian church to be a little less carnal. Here is a question from Crystal. She says, my question is about the rapture. Uh, is it in the Bible? And when is it supposed to happen? I looked for the word rapture and could not find anything. Crystal, I know exactly, and this probably will take the rest of our time. Are we inside five minutes? Um, uh, When I was, I I, I empathize. Uh, When I was a brand new Christian, um, two men that I was meeting with on a fairly regular basis, they called me. I actually bought my breakfast one day and said, well, I want to talk to you about something that's going to sound weird, but we want you to just bear with us and listen. And they started talking to me about the rapture of the church. And and one of the guys looked at me and said, you know, if the rapture happened right now, we would be taken away. Our clothes would be here. Our food would still be here. But we'd be taken away to be with the Lord Inslee. And all the other people would be sitting here eating like nothing happened. But, of course, they'd wonder what happened, where we went. But um, he said, that's unbelievers will be left behind. And we who are believers will be taken up to be with the Lord. And I, my first thought, Crystal, was... What did I get into? This sounds like science fiction. It doesn't sound like reality at all. So one of the things I want to do is find a biblical basis for this doctrine of the rapture. Uh, it's in two places uh, in, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51, and 52. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That means to die. We won't all die. But we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, when I when it says we will be changed, that's metamorpho. We will be transformed, like the the uh, butterfly um, in the cocoon, uh, coming out. That's will be changed. That's the word picture. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse seven, four verses fourteen through seventeen. Paul's trying to encourage the Thessalonians. He said. Uh, We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, the people that have died, he's going to bring them with him when he returns. And then he says this, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're first because they're already with him. But we who are alive from the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. See, this isn't Jesus coming to earth. He's calling us to come to him. Now, I get Really frustrated when people say, Well, you know, the rapture's a relatively new thing in the uh, 18th century. John Darby is the one who, who made it, uh, who came up with the idea, but it's nowhere in Scripture. Paul was a pre-trib, pre-millennial believer. We who are still alive, Paul expected to still be alive when the Lord came for his church. I've said on this program many, many times that. That was the source of power in the first century church. Christians got up in the morning. They checked the eastern sky. This could be the day Jesus is coming. Well, we're to live, Rachel, the same way. Like every day could be the day that Jesus comes. If we live our lives like that, there will be power in our lives because we're going to live pursuing holiness. We're going to live in the presence of the Lord. We're going to live empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are the places where the rapture is. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's from a Latin word, rapturo, raptus. But it describes what's going to happen. It's a sudden snatching away. All I know is Jesus is coming. I don't know when, but I know it could be today. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate the calls and great questions today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. Tonight, I'm going to be doing an Old Testament Christmas from Isaiah chapter 9.